Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. So, Rob, of all the music conversations that we've had in our lives, I don't think we've ever talked about Elvis before. Have we ever had it? Because I don't know how you feel about Elvis. Yeah. Are you, are you an Elvis fan? <sighs> no. I would say no. I mean, I, I, I don't dislike him. But I've never really found my, my entry point to Elvis. I read, um, what was that two-part biography of Elvis? That's the Peter Gwarlnick. Yeah. Uh, Last Train to Memphis and Careless Love. Right. I read that many years ago to try and spark my interest. And I found some things that I like about his career. But um, And the things that I like are kind of weird, I guess. Like, I really like his early Vegas oh, yeah. stage. Um, Absolutely. That's my favorite era of Elvis. I, my favorite period of Elvis is 68 to 72. Okay, where, so maybe it's not that weird. Yeah, yeah, you have the 68 comeback special. Which I think is a good entry point for people. If mm-hmm. you're curious about Elvis, I think that's like Elvis at his coolest. He's wearing the black leather suit. He's playing with his son records era band. Like they're just hanging out and jamming and sounds awesome. And uh, then his early records after that where he was in Memphis with Chips Moman, Like very swamp rock era right. for him. That's like um, the Suspicious Minds yes, uh, in the ghetto record, right? Yeah, and uh, uh, Long Black Limousine, Stranger My Own Town, songs like that. Donna singing backup on Suspicious Minds. Right. Um, and then Elvis Country, that's a great record. Yeah, and those live albums that he put out around that time um, are, I think there's some really good ones. There's the there's MSG one. one. Um, yeah. Live at the International is the one that I really like. Yeah. Uh, which is like a recording of the Vegas band when it was... It's like 
Uh, I guess a little bit post comeback special, just when it started to get sort of big in Vegasy, but hadn't like totally teared yeah, he, into. He still had the hunger parody. on yeah. there. Like that's yeah, that's that's like a great record. I also am a fan of like the uh, Aloha record in '73 where he did the satellite show for like a billion oh, yeah. people. Yeah, and that that's like pretty lavish, but kind of like the lavish aspect of it he's covering you know the beatles he's covering hank williams he's doing my way he's like all <laughs> over the map on yeah. that record um anyway the reason i wanted to talk to you about elvis is that there's that new elvis movie that came out right Baz Luhrmann's elvis <laughs> it won't be that new by the time this episode posts but i i saw it recently and i was putting it off for a while because i am an elvis fan but i was like i don't know about this movie <laughs> but I went to go see it. I actually quite liked it. I, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I, w- I would. I was disappointed, though, that Jerry didn't have a cameo in this movie. I thought <laughs> because Jerry, he used Elvis's drummer from right. the Vegas years, Ronnie Tut, who <laughs> recently passed away, passed away in 2021. But he was the anchor of the TCB band taking care of business for Elvis in 69. And I'm not sure how long he was with Elvis. I know he started drumming for Jerry in the Jerry Garcia band in 74. Mm-hmm. But that would have been a part-time gig. He could have done both. So right. I'm not sure exactly about that. But it would have been awesome. I was waiting for a scene where Jerry is at the International Hotel, standing in the wings and watching Ronnie Tut play with <laughs> Elvis. And then maybe Elvis and Jerry could have like a little because it's like like this movie it's not like it's strictly adhering to the facts or anything you could have right. squeezed in a Jerry cameo <laughs> it, it would have been great because the Elvis that is in that movie that Baz Luhrmann cast uh, this guy Austin Butler an amazing Elvis really okay he's, he's really good and the thing that's impressive about it to me is that I feel like he gets better as Elvis's uh, as Elvis ages like he plays the older Elvis really well, like not as a caricature, you know, as you would expect. But yeah, because it's like a meme now. Hit the like fat Austin right. Butler photos. Yeah. Well, and that incarnation of him, which is like Elvis in '77, like at the end. Right. It's only very brief. There's like one scene where he's singing a song. It's like the end of the movie, basically. There's a famous okay. clip of Elvis playing Unchained Melody uh, like at the piano in Indianapolis like a month or two before he died. Because he kept tour- he toured like almost exactly until he died, just like Jerry. You know, very similar thing. And it's a very emotional clip, and he looks awful, but he sounds really good. It's a very emotional performance, and that's the end of the movie. So, spoiler alert, Elvis dies at the end of Elvis. <laughs> well, I mean, it is Baz Luhrmann, so he... But- wouldn't necessarily uh, stick to the history, the no. historical facts, right? I know. Well, if like Tarantino did it, like Elvis would live on, you know? That, <laughs> right, that, exactly. Alternate history. Of, that would have been a cool thing. But uh, yeah, that would have been my one complaint about Elvis the movie is that there wasn't a Jerry Garcia scene. I think there, there yeah, needed they to be a Jerry uh, scene. They could have put Jonah Hill in and, you know, it, it would have been like a tease for the... Uh, the Grateful Dead cinematic universe exactly. coming out, coming to theaters soon. I gotta say, um, man, like uh, Jonah Hill, it, you know, assuming this movie actually happens, which again, I'm skeptical, right? That the Grateful Dead Martin Scorsese movie will actually happen, but you know, if Jonah Hill didn't already have a lot of pressure on him, 
Austin Butler, man, he's raising the bar for actors playing famous musicians. Like Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury, get that bullshit yeah. out of here. <laughs> Butler, I think, is way better. I, I, I got like because that's a hard character to play. I mean, that Elvis has Absolutely. been so mythologized, so caricatured. Right. I actually thought that he made him seem. He, he, you looked at the screen and you felt like you were seeing Elvis, but he wasn't, you know, kind of resting on the standard hacky Elvis signifiers. I don't know. I I, I was really impressed by his performance. Um, but yeah, we just needed a little bit of Jerry in there. I want to see Elvis and Jerry interacting. I think that would have been amazing. Yeah, and it's like I don't know if they ever met. I've never heard any story about that. But they were. We're talking about a '77 show today. And by the time of this show, Elvis had died, right? Elvis, he yeah. Died August 77. Yep. Uh, but in May, uh, when we were you know, covering some of the May shows, and you look at who else played these venues around the same time, Elvis and the Dead were kind of on the same tour itinerary, just like yeah. a week or two removed. Like, I was looking up Elvis tour dates. He actually played the Rochester Community War Memorial May 25th, which is the same day as... Um, Oh, that's not the same day as Dix Picks 3. Dix Picks 3 is May 22nd, but... Around the uh, same time. Around the same time. So it was, uh, you know, Elvis and the Dead, you know, sort of, you know, running similar tour paths. Yeah. But also, you know, people who were thought to be past their prime, of course, though Elvis's prime was a little earlier than the Dead's, but uh, trying to find a way to survive in the late 70s as pop culture and music moved away from them. Well, I just had an idea. This, And someone can take this idea because I don't think we could do it because this might be the most depressing podcast of all time. But someone <laughs> could do a show where they listen to every show of the last Elvis tour in 77. And they, yeah. and they contrast it with the last Dead tour with Jerry. You know, where you have two icons on their last legs, literally... And they die pretty soon after the last show. Jerry died, what, like a month after um, the, his exactly last show? Exactly a month, yeah. I, I don't know when the last Elvis show was exactly, but it would have been probably close to that. Because you know, yeah. he was on the road, you know, right up until he passed away. So, yeah, if someone wants to do the compare and contrast Elvis and Jerry, the last tour, the most depressing podcast of all time... <laughs> Uh, so you that's not going to be uh, 36 from the vault season five. Well, maybe, 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 <laughs> maybe yeah, I'm just spitballing here, but yeah, we could do a whole season of, uh, you know, dead musicians, final tours. Oh my God. <laughs> that, I, that would be, yeah, that would, that would be tough. I, I, I feel like we would be, you know, we'd have to be on, uh, antidepressants throughout that entire season. <laughs> that, that'd be yeah. pretty brutal. Uh, but yeah, again, you know, Talking about other parallels between the dead and Elvis, you know, we mentioned Donna singing on Suspicious Minds, you know, Ronnie Tut playing with both Elvis and Jerry. Uh, Jerry Garcia Band also played um, a couple of those Sun Records classics, you know, Mystery oh, Train sure. they did, and they did That's All Right Mama. So, yeah, I don't know if I've, if I've ever seen Jerry talking about Elvis, but I would imagine, you know, he would have been... Um, a teenager when Elvis first came along, so I'm sure there sure. was some sort of impact. I'm, I'm sure Bobby liked Elvis. Yeah. So, and um, one thing I had noted for the, for this volume we're about to talk about is that 
uh, Lazy Lightning Supplication, which is kind of tucked into the end here as some filler. Kind of sounds to me like Bob trying to write an Elvis song. I don't know how you feel about it. It, it very <laughs> much, There's a lot of like, um, I guess, sort of vocal tics in it that sound Elvisy to me, where he does the kind of like homo homo lazy lightning thing. And then like the big supplication part with the woo sounds like something you could see Elvis sort of, you know, pop in the band like he, he would do in the 70s with like a big... Uh, a big, a big pose. So uh, I don't know. Maybe there's another uh, Grateful Dead song that would sound more natural in Elvis's hands, but uh, that sounds a little bit like Bob trying to do Elvis. Yeah, I mean, I think Bob definitely has some Elvis-style vocal affectations that run through like a lot of his songs, especially the cowboy songs. But you know, like the way he sings "St. Louis, City of Blues," you know, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Blackthorn Wind, you know, like that definitely has an Elvis vibe to it. I mean, you know, Bobby's the heartthrob of the band. He's right. the he's the sex pot, so you know you got to inject some Elvis into you if you're going to be a sex pot. You know, even mm-hmm. now, because he's the sexiest man in rock and roll. <laughs> Bob and Elvis are tied, I think, for that. <laughs> Where does John Mayer fit into that? Well, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Thirty-six from the vault. My name is Steve, and I am Rob. And uh, we're here talking about Dick's Picks thirty-four. Yes, we're in the home stretch, the real home stretch now. Three yes. left, the final three. We're we're like Elvis in seventy-seven. We're like Jerry in ninety-five. Like we're we're on our last legs exactly. at this point. Fans are tearing down the walls. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, it's getting dark. We're we're penning a letter to the community to tell them to chill out or else we can't tour anymore. I am like 100 pounds overweight and I'm on tons of pills right now. <laughs> Man, I'm sweating bullets already. We just got started. Uh, I should mention this is a, a show from the Community War Memorial in Rochester, New York. 11-577 with a little bit of 11-277 in Toronto. So yeah, we're, we're, we're stuck in the mid-70s. We yeah. were 76 last week, 77 this week. We're just a few volumes removed from an, uh, another big chunk of 77. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been a lot in this zone, we got to say. And you're getting a little irritated, I think, Steve. Well, I, I, I think you're projecting a little bit there, too. <laughs> I, I'm not irritated. You know, look, um, I mean, I said this in the previous episode. I think a weakness of the Dick's picks, especially here in the home stretch is that there's a lot of 70 shows. It's all 70 shows. And, um, to me, you know, I'm not the kind of listener who likes to listen to like a tour in sequence. Like you are like, you're, you're doing that with fish right now. You've been doing that for a while, writing your great essays for Substack about fish. I'm not 
really into that kind of thing, I, I tend to uh, get a little bored after like seven or eight shows. Right. Even if it's a jam band, even if they're great. To me, the beauty of a band like The Dead is that you can listen to 73 for a while if you want, and then you can listen to 92, and then you can go to 68, and the ability to jump around, like Scott Bakula, Quantum Leap, if you will, <laughs> is part of the fun. So when you're kind of stuck in the same era, for me, I I get a little impatient. And one thing that jumped out to me as we've been stuck in this zone for a while is as great as 77 is, obviously it's one of the great years in Grateful Dead history, it is not a particularly exploratory year in terms of the jamming. We're mm-hmm. not getting like a lot of just like epic jams, really. Right. And to me, I think I was feeling that acutely listening to Dick's Picks 34. I kind of wanted something a little spacier at times. And, you know, for the dead, it's like pretty straightforward on Dick's Picks 34. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, so a lot of people have been doing Europe 72 show-by-show re-listens this year, given that it's the 50th anniversary. And that project, which I've tried to do and never finished, has some of the same problems where the set list can be very similar. But at the end of every Europe 72 show, pretty much, you get either a giant, the other one, or a giant dark star, right? And while there's some patterns that repeat in those jams, like, you're going to get something different every show. Like a 40-minute, just like, you know, gourmet meal of improvisation at the end that probably makes it all worthwhile. And 77 doesn't have that, right? It doesn't have, like, a sort of spotlight jam from night to night in the same way, big open jamming. Um, I do kind of think, so you mentioned like that I enjoy going show by show. I do that less with the dead than I do with fish where I've made like a whole like lifelong project (laughs) of it basically. Um, In my argument, people ask me what I get out of listening to it that way. And my argument has always been that you know, with jam bands are so many shows. And so people tend to listen to like the really popular consensus greatest shows. And so you end up getting these sort of like standout shows from different eras and people then extrapolate and say, Oh, you know, this show like Cornell in 77 is so great. This is what the dead sounded like in 77. Uh, But when you dig in more and you listen to more shows from that year, you find out that there actually is a lot more variation in what the dead sounded like in 77 than you might think. And I, I think maybe the argument for so many 77 shows being in the Dick's Pick series, I mean, one, there was the demand for it, right? We're still talking, this is 20 some, almost 20 years ago that this came out. And people were just hungry, hungry, hungry for more 77 dead because they had heard Cornell and they're like, this is amazing. And I think part of why there's so many 77 shows in the Dick's Pick series is that you know, Dick initially, and then Dave, when he took over, wanted to show that the dead were not just one thing in 77. And so even though we've done a lot of 77 shows, I feel like all of them have had like a slightly different flavor of the dead. Now, it's it's definitely, you know, picking nits at this point. Like, it's subtle variations. It's not, you know, comparing a 77 dead show to a 92 dead show or a 69 dead show. Um, but I do kind of get some fascination out of hearing you know that 
77 Dead wasn't just a monolith that all sounded like Cornell, that there were these different flavors, different shades, different types of sounds uh, that they explored that year. And it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, what which of those threads that they continue on with in 78 and 79. And so that's a lot of what I thought about with this show, even though I, like yourself, have a little bit of 77 fatigue. I tried to keep it in my mind, like, what what does this add to the story of the dead, releasing this particular show these two shows um and filling in that part of the calendar yeah i mean i hear what you're saying about picking up on the nuances and i think sometimes too if you listen to a show that isn't a classic it makes you understand better why the classic show is a classic you know yeah hearing something that's not as good brings out the quality in something else i get that i do think though that for me you know you can hear lots of 77 shows over time I'd rather do that out of sequence. I'd rather be like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to cover this era over the course of many years because I'm also going here and here and here. And, and over time, I'm going to hear everything, but just not in order. Because yeah. And look, I feel like I'm violating jam band code here. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. I feel like I've heard people say that it's a bit of like a normie thing to do to judge a show by the, by the set list. Sure. And, I, and I know there's some listeners who don't even look at the set list before they listen to a show because they want to be surprised. Right. But I got to say, like, the set list does matter to me because, especially if you're listening to a lot of shows in the same era, because, you know, like on this show, for instance, I mean, Dick's Picks 34 comes from 77, 33 was from 76, but like we get the first three songs at the top of the album, like on both uh, 33 and 34. And it's like, Jesus Christ, like I'm sick. <laughs> like I've defended new Minglewood blues on this show. <laughs> like I'm fucking sick of that song. I, come right. on. Like I need a break from new Minglewood blues so I can get back into it. But I feel like I've right. just been hit with new Minglewood blues a lot. And, and a lot of the songs that we're getting in this mid seventies era, I feel like we're just hearing the same songs a lot. Like might as well, in 33, you were saying, like, oh, it's cool that we're hearing this because we haven't heard it yet in Dick's Picks, and it's a rare song, relatively rare song for them to play. But we get it again this week, and it's like, oh, it's a little less special because, like, we just right. heard this thing. So that would be my thing. It's like I, I totally get digging into less heralded shows. I just want to space it out over time. I, I'm not necessarily a, a sequential guy. Even though I respect that approach, I understand mm -hmm. it. It just doesn't personally work for me. Well, we've always, we've said, I think, from the very beginning, I don't know if we've ever said it on mic, but um, this podcast wouldn't work if the Dick's Pick series was chronological. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Like, we, we would have lost our minds a long time ago. The fact that the Dick's Pick series is so sort of, you know, quantum leapy, as you described it, uh, jumping back and forth through all different eras, is kind of a, a saving grace, you know, not just for us, but for the series, too. Like, I think it would have got kind of tiresome if they were just, like... If it was, like, the 30 trips around the sun box where they just decided to release one great show from every year the dead were active. That would have got tired quick. Yes. Um, but it, it, it adds to the story when you kind of zigzag around the timeline. So uh, a little bit of a, a stumbling block here that we have two shows, not just in chronological order, but, you know, only a year apart basically um but we'll we'll get through it we'll get through it together steve yeah i, I just i just miss brent i'm just saying i miss brent <laughs> you know i miss my boy brent not getting that much brent lately so at least not on this show i gotta i gotta go outside 36 from the vault to get my brent fixes um right. let's get to our mailbag here uh yes and speaking of brent 
Yes. We've got a good, uh, we got a good Brent letter to kick it off. We do. Well, I just wanted to say thank you all for writing in. Uh, if you want to hit us up, we're at 36FTV at uh, gmail.com. I want to say that uh, lately we've been getting a lot of really nice emails from people thanking us for doing the show, saying that they hope we continue. And I'll just say, we don't know if we're going to continue. I honestly have no idea. <laughs> we got to figure out what we would even do. But that's for another day. We're still on this tour. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to acknowledge the very nice things that people have said. We're not going to read those emails because it's awkward to read <laughs> people complimenting you. You know, it's it's a little like you're patting yourself on the back, even though you're the ones patting us on the back. Uh, so we're not going to read those. But I just wanted to say thank you for the nice compliments. And, and we really appreciate you guys listening because it would not be as fun if it was just Rob and I making uh, Barry jokes yeah. uh, to each it other is. with no audience. Don't get me wrong, though. It is pretty fun. It is, yeah. We would, <laughs> we, we would do it anyway. But yeah, exactly. I'm just saying it's, it's fun <laughs> knowing that there's people enjoying our right. bullshit. So anyway, do you want to read uh, our first letter? This is, a, this is a long one, but this is an interesting letter. Right. So this is uh, from a buddy of mine, Andrew Peerless, who... Uh, was one of the people instrumental in first getting me into the dead. Uh, it's an old fish friend of mine. I was definitely into fish before I was into the dead, and he helped me fill in a lot of knowledge. So throughout this series, I have been uh, plagiarizing wisdom from Andrew. So here, here's his chance to shine through, a, through a, a mailbag contribution. He says, Hi, Steve and Mitch. I enjoyed your recent Curveball episode on Mayer more than I expected and was intrigued by the Brent Mayer comparison that Steve mentioned. Hearing those fellas' names in the same sentence brought up another point of comparison between them. Wristwatches. Mm. As part of the likely tiny community of serious deadheads who are also watch obsessives, I noticed during one of the 2020 Grateful Dead YouTube broadcasts that Brent appeared to be wearing a gold Rolex presidential day date during a 1989 show at Rich Stadium. Holy shit, he's dropping some serious watch knowledge. I know, yeah. Right there. He could be lying. I have no idea if that's even correct, <laughs> but it sounds correct, so we'll, we'll go with it. Well, he did the follow-up research to back it up. He says he did a little digging on it and confirmed the spec and also learned that it was a bit of a joke amongst the band and crew. It seems that Brent and his cohort tended to hang out in lower-end establishments, and there was ongoing concern that he was tempting fate by wearing it everywhere he went, like someone in a random dive bar might lop off his arm with a machete to get at his watch, uh, which today retails for around $40,000 for reference. Yeah. Uh, Mayer, however, is on a whole other level. He is an extremely well-documented and highly publicized aficionado and is considered one of the most influential watch collectors in the world. Wow. With a collection that is literally valued in the tens of millions of dollars. Jesus. There is a ton of press about him in his collection that you can find with a quick Google search, and he's been interviewed about it in the likes of GQ and the New York Times. I admit that the man and his music are generally not for me, but he does appear genuinely passionate about watches as an art form and as a craft, and he absolutely knows his stuff about them. The craziest part is the clout he has as a collector. The guy can wear a watch that is undervalued or doesn't sell particularly well, and it will spike in value on the collector's market and become difficult to find within days as a direct result. Kind of like Stranger Things sending Kate Bush back to the top <laughs> of the charts. None of this is exactly going to dispel the image of Mayer as douchebag, but it is an interesting aspect to his persona that I think tracks with some of the topics you guys discussed last week. High time indeed. Andrew P. from Brooklyn, New York. Wow, man. The watch community... 
coming out in support of John Mayer. <laughs> I had no idea about any of this. I it's fascinating to me how everything in the world has a community around it. Exactly. Yeah. Everything is collectible. And there are experts in everything under the sun. And yeah. I just love the idea that there's this community of watchheads out there who are just staring at Mayer's wrists anytime he yeah. goes in public. And they're like, holy shit, look at that thing. I need to buy that. I sent a photo of the Jumbotron showing John Mayer playing guitar to Andrew at the Dead & Company show I was at uh, last month. Uh, purely just to show the watch, not to show him playing guitar. Yeah, right. <laughs> said, like, here's your watch photo from the show. I love the idea that, that there's people who like, I don't like Mayer's music, but his watch knowledge is on point. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, we've always talked about how, you know, Mayer brings a new, like, younger crowd to Dead & Company shows, and I wonder if he's bringing the watch crowd as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, bring it... <laughs> Truly expanding the tent for the dead. Yeah. You know, and again, yeah, the, the watch heads, they're like, I mean, you, you were like a watch taper at the Dead & Co. show. <laughs> I was, that's true. You were, taping, <laughs> you were taping the watch for your watch aficionado friend. Right. Uh, wow. It's amazing. It's it's crazy world. I love this world. You, you learn yeah. things every day. It's amazing. Thank you, Andrew, for, for writing in. That's the, yeah. the, I did not know any of that. Yeah, someday, you know, now there, you can go find websites that just talk about, like, the guitar that Jerry played at every single show during the Grateful Dead's run. Like, someday there will be a website that is just John Mayer's watch from every Dead & Company show. And that's a beautiful thing. Well, I, I was thinking about that, you know, Long Strange Trip, like the Steve Silberman clip where he's talking about the different parts of the floor. Like, you got the spinners over here. You've mm -hmm. got, like, you know, the, the sort of, like... Uh, religious fanatic people over here. You got like the the hearing impaired people over there. There's gonna be like the watch part of the <laughs> of the floor at the watch show side. Now. The watch yeah. side. It's amazing. Um, let's get to our second letter. Uh, this comes from Malcolm. He's in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, big Br Brooklyn representation this week. Yeah, two Brooklyns. This is like the hipsters coming out, man. <laughs> All you Brooklyn hipsters. Are hipsters still in Brooklyn, or are they like in a different part of New York now? I've, uh, I have no I idea. Uh, we're, we're we're simple Midwesterners. We yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. We're old as shit Midwesterners. We have no idea <laughs> where the young, cool people are. Um, hi, Steve and Mitch. Thank you for putting in the hours to bring us to this podcast. It's been a wonderful companion to COVID and post-COVID life. Okay, that is a compliment that I just read for us. Right. So I broke we'll our own it. rule. We'll take it. Yeah. Thank you, Malcolm. I was re-watching the Kurt Cobain documentary Montage of Heck recently. In it, there's a clip of young Kurt sneering and saying, I'm going to mail this tape to Jerry Garcia. I'm going to sprinkle some patchouli on it, and he'll dig right in. Then a few years later, post-Nevermind, he's seen in a Kill the Grateful Dead t-shirt. As someone who loved Nirvana religiously as a kid and whose current favorite band is the Grateful Dead, I'm curious about this dynamic. Obviously, the Dead in the late 80s and early 90s were playing to millions every year and overrun stadiums in one of the biggest bands in the world. But even then, they could they be considered corporate rock? Was it that they were just old and uncool? That doesn't seem likely as there was a newfound appreciation for Neil Young from Nirvana and Sonic Youth at the time. I would have thought that Kurt might dig the fact that Jerry played for a crowd of 100,000 people in sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention that Jerry was always about the purity of the music. So what do you guys think? 
Is there a real incompatibility there, or was Kurt's beef just a product of the time? Most importantly, if Kurt survived 1994, would he eventually get shown the light? It would have been great to see him burn down Ico Ico next to John Mayer. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Truly a cursed image to leave on, Malcolm. Uh, Thank you, Malcolm. Great letter there. So, yeah, Jerry uh, getting dissed by Kurt Cobain. I remember this being a thing. Yeah. Absolutely. In the early 90s. And, you know, I got to say, it's interesting now because I feel like this is true across the board in music. A lot of the old uh, barriers that existed between different kinds of people and scenes, it's really been broken down. Not completely, but it's not as tribal, I think, as it was in the 90s. And, you know, one of the things about the 90s is that, like, if you were into punk music or alternative music, that you couldn't also be into hippie music. It was right. very anti-hippie. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we're around the same, because you remember that, right? I mean, I, I, I hated the Grateful Dead in the 90s because of people <laughs> like Kurt Cobain, essentially. Right. I love Nirvana, and he dissed the Grateful Dead. So I'm like, okay, fuck the Grateful Dead, you know? And I didn't, <laughs> and I didn't even know anything about the Grateful Dead. And I don't right. think Kurt Cobain did either, but it was, it just seemed like a tribal pose, really. Yeah. It remind, um, recently, it, with the uh, the the pavement reunion, uh, a, a picture circulated. I think our our buddy Tyler Wilcox on Twitter posted this of Gary Young, who was the original pavement drummer, uh, had a homemade shirt that said "Grateful that they're dead" <laughs> with a steely on it. And I was like, I replied to it. I was like, you know, most people would probably misunderstand me wearing this, but I really want that shirt because it is such like a perfect encapsulation of like the '90s. Yeah, divide, right, between indie rock, alternative rock people, and Grateful Dead people. And, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious how old Malcolm in Brooklyn is uh, and whether he, like, lived through this like we did. Um, but I really think it, it, it just comes down to the fact that the Grateful Dead in the early 90s were so conflated with, like, 60s nostalgia. Right. That it, And it was, like, totally divorced from the music that they were playing. It was just that people got dressed up like it was 19, the summer to love, uh, and went to stadiums and smoked a bunch of weed. And incidentally, there was a Grateful Dead concert happening. Uh, and, you know, the, a lot of those fans were there just to party. A lot of those fans, as we already alluded to in this episode, were being real jerks about it and, you know, causing lots of trouble. So it, the Grateful Dead, by sort of... Um, you know, proximity almost got looped into that sort of like looking backwards baby boomer nostalgia thing that Nirvana, of course, was rebelling very hard against. So, it, you know, it's just like a cyclical thing. Like in the 90s, you know, looking back at the 60s and thinking that was the greatest time ever was, you know, like the uncoolest stance you could do. Um, whereas now with more remove, like, you know, the 60s and the 70s are seen, I think, uh, as having a lot more substance uh, than they did maybe back then. So it really had nothing to do with the music. I don't know if Kurt Cobain ever comes around to the Grateful Dead if he survives the 90s. It doesn't really seem like his kind of thing. Um, it, it would be interesting to... to to, to see how that developed. I mean, I think what, part, one of the best things that could have ever happened to the dead is that they, you know, sort of went off the road uh, after Jerry died uh, and were able to then separate the music from the scene and people could treat those two things as, as independent entities. Well, and also, you know, we got to thank our, our buddy Dick Latvala because I think 
things like Dick's Picks, it was instrumental in really kind of retconning the dead from being a 60s band, because you're right. right. I feel like how they were talked about in the 80s and 90s, like by the mainstream media, was always as like this 60s band. Whereas now, I feel like people who are getting into them, they think of them almost like as, as a 70s band. Like the 70s is now the era that everyone talks about. Right. To the point where in Dick's Picks, I could have used <laughs> a little bit more 60s here at the end. Like we're not getting really any 60s either. Like I always talk about Brent and I love Brent, but you know, we're not getting a ton of pig pen either. You know, right. I, I guess I'm at the point where I would welcome a 15 minute good morning little schoolgirl, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but right. I'd I'd be into that because we haven't heard that in a while. And ironically, <laughs> the Grateful Dead in the '60s was when they sounded the most like Nirvana, right? <laughs> like yeah. like a a song like uh, "Cream Puff War," like what, some of those really early garagey Grateful Dead songs, or sound... just a feedback, you know, like a yeah, feedback exactly. track at the end of the sh- of the gig. Yeah, definitely. It, so you know, I don't know. To me, I, I'm going to disagree with uh, Rob here. I think Kurt he ends up sitting in with Wolf Brothers. He's doing some Wolf Brothers gigs, you know, because I feel like if Kurt had lived at some point, he's going to do like the middle-aged comeback record produced by Don Was. You know, he's going to hire Don Was. (laughs) Rick Rubin. Yeah. But Don Don Was. Well, Don Was is in Wolf Brothers. Yeah, that's the connection to the Wolf Brothers. So Don Was someday is going to be like, hey, Kurt, man, hey, do you know Bob Weir? He's a cool dude. And Kurt's like, oh, I don't really like the dead, but like, I'll, I'll give it a listen. And then, you know, before you know it, Bob and Kurt are doing yoga together. Uh, yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're taking walks in the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, yeah. And then Kurt is a wolf brother. You know, that right. I'm going to put that forward as a alternate timeline. That's the Tarantino a, movie. That's the Tarantino right. movie about Kurt Cobain. <laughs> that he joins wolf uh, brothers. Wow. Yeah, that's another image. Um, the other thing I'll put out there is I was not as... Uh, impressionable as Steve, apparently, because I did listen to both Nirvana and The Grateful Dead in the 90s. But part of what saved me, and I wanted to mention it because Malcolm brought them up, is Sonic Youth, who, even in the 90s, uh, talked a lot about. Lee Ronaldo especially would talk about how he was a big Grateful Dead fan. So if I needed to reconcile those two worlds in my mind, uh, Sonic Youth was sort of the bridge. So, you know, if Don Waz didn't get Kurt Cobain into the dead, maybe uh, his buddies in Sonic Youth would have eventually convinced him to listen to you know, a sick dark star. I just did whatever Kurt Cobain t- told me to do when I was in high school. So, you well, know, could, and it turned it. out all right. You, you made it. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, let's dig into the context here a little bit of this Dick's Picks. This album was released on Valentine's Day, 2005. Given to many wives in 2005. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's a three banger. And like I mentioned earlier, that it's, it's uh, mostly the Rochester show from. November 5th, 77. But you get a little bit of a Toronto. I guess you get, what, seven tracks from the Toronto show on November 2nd. Sort of plop down right in the middle, too, awkwardly. I don't really like that they do that. I feel like, certainly on streaming, they should, you know, reorganize it so that all the filler comes at the end. Because this show especially, this volume especially, are really, I would say, changes the mood significantly when you jump from 11.5 to 11.2. I got to say, okay, we get we have another screensaver cover, too, the album cover. This is, like, maybe, like, the least worst of the screensaver <laughs> covers. All right, I got to look at it. I'm looking at my CD copy, and, like, it still has the used CD store label on it. That like Wow, really big one, yeah. Yeah, and, like, 
it's like one of those labels like this must have been sitting in the store for a while because i i cannot get it off it's like sandblasted onto the cd <laughs> jewel case so yeah. my cover uh you, you get the you know the screensaver cover which again i don't think is terrible the color scheme it's sort of like a what like a like a bluish purple yeah blue and white looks like outer space a little bit i think i like the spaciness of it uh <laughs> but yeah it has this really ugly ucd like price tag on it yeah so but you know it's a good relic of that time yeah i feel like in the future this will be it might add to the value because people will be like oh what what's a ucd store and i'll be like well, right well it's like uh our buddy john mayer putting the nice price sticker on sob rock exactly like, it's, a, it's a signifier now of a particular age and uh, this is a Betty board, we should mention. And yeah, a lot of Betty boards this season. And it made me wonder if part of why we're stuck in the 70s, I don't know officially the timeline on this, but I wonder if this was around the time when that like cache of Betty boards was rediscovered that was bought in like the storage uh, sale, <laughs> storage mm-hmm. auction, and then Rob Eaton tracked them down, Rob Eaton from the Dark Star Orchestra. Uh because maybe one reason why we just keep getting 70s shows is that the vault all of a sudden had a bunch of new, great-sounding uh, Betty recordings. Uh, and, you know, I don't think she did. She wasn't quite there yet, I think, in the late 60s. Maybe she was. I think she recorded some of the Live Dead. Um, and then in the 80s, I've never seen a Betty board from the 80s. They must exist, though, right? Because she was, like, Brent's girlfriend. She was still hanging around the band. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the lineage is of that, yeah. but I mean, yeah, I, I definitely think that the sound quality was part of like why so many of shows from this era were released, you know, the Betty Boards. I mean, they sound great, of course. Um, we should mention that this is the fifth show from 1977 that we've heard in Dick's Picks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, and just to run down the list, like, so we had Dick's Picks 3. That was yeah. Florida Sport, yeah, which might be the best one. Oh yeah, absolutely, probably one the best one. Dick's Picks. Yeah, Dick's Picks ten, which was right. uh, at the end of the year. Uh, I think it's December 29th or so. Twenty eighth and 29th. Twenty eighth and twenty ninth. That's Dick's Picks ten. Um, I'm doing this off the top of the dome here, so all right, I'm impressed. Um, Dick's Picks twenty nine. We had that was like the uh, right the double. That's the six banger. Yeah, that two was, shows from May. And what am I missing? I'm missing... English Town. English Town, of course. Dick's Picks 15. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, as we kind of talk about the dead in 77, I feel like we've covered, like, the dead in 77 a lot. I don't know if we want to just reiterate that, like, you know, Mickey had the car accident and then came back <laughs> later in the year. Right. And I think, what, generally speaking, the tightness that you associate with the dead in, you know, the spring... Of seventy seven, it gets a little more sloppy, Joe. Here in late seventy seven, yeah. I mean, they do this very. I mean, a lot of miles. Not a really long fall tour. It was only twenty shows, but they started in Seattle. They go all the way down to Texas and New Orleans. They come up through the Midwest for a little bit, and then they go back to the Northeast for the shows that we're hearing here. Uh, they ended with a uh, sort of a handful of upstate New York shows and this one Toronto show. Uh, and then they were off until the New Year's Eve run that we heard on Dick's Picks 10. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, and that's where, you know, we're, we're splitting hairs here, but uh, this one sort of, this, this is a pin dropped between English Town and the New Year's Eve run. 
So it's giving you a little extra taste of what late 77 Dead sounded like. Um, and, you know, what they sounded like on just like a regular tour stop, right? Because English Town is kind of its own thing. Big, giant festival. Uh, sort of out of step with the rest of the year in a lot of ways, I think. Maybe that's why you forgot it uh, when you're running down the 77 shows. And then the New Year's Eve run, um, we talked a lot about it in that episode. It's at Winterland. It feels like a sort of homecoming show. They seem very relaxed and laid back uh, in back in San Francisco with all their like most loyal fans. So, you know, here's a chance to hear, I guess, uh, the dead in late 77 just being sort of road dogs and playing, um, you know, as we've mentioned before, a, a war memorial, which is one of their uh, natural environments. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a charitable way to put it. I would say that this is the least essential 1977 show from Dick's Picks. I think that yeah. the other ones are, are uh, you know, it, again, it's a it's 1977 dead. So, you know, take that uh, in, con- you know, that's a relative thing to say. But yeah, I, the other ones, I think if you were going to, if you had to pick a Dick's Picks from 77, again, I think Dick's Picks 3 would be the one you would go for right away. English Town obviously has a lot of uh, partisans. Um I think this would be among the last ones you would pick. Uh, yeah. I will say, I think it's interesting just for what was else was happening in music in 1977 around the time of the show, like about a week before these shows, the Sex Pistols put out, Never mind the Bullocks, here's the Sex Pistols. Very seminal album from this year. And then about a week after, or actually just about a few days after this, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack comes out. So you have like the two poles of music. <laughs> You know, at least, it's, you know, how we talk about music history, you talk about disco and punk in 1977. This show's right in the middle of, like, two big signposts right. of, of that era. So, to me, like, imagining, you know, someone maybe listening to the Sex Pistols record and then going to see The Dead, you know. <laughs> and then maybe a few days after that, they get the, the, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. It's just... That's sort of an interesting image to hold in your head. I mean, uh, rock documentaries have led me to believe that as soon as Nevermind the Bullocks came out, bands like the Grateful Dead just like turned to dust. That's but they true. melted like the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, so it, it's impressive that they were still able to play shows here. Yeah. I uh, know. Johnny Rotten said, No future for you. And then Jerry Garcia <laughs> was like, Well, I'm done. And he put his guitar down, <laughs> retired forever, right. never played Walked another Walked away, note. living in Cuba. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like. Uh, it's very symbolic of like the, this classic rock era ending in a certain way, I guess, right? With sort of being attacked from two different fronts, like the punk front and as well, and the disco sort of pop front. But it's also the height of this is really the beginning of like albums starting to sell like just tons of copies because we're going to talk about this later. I'll mention it now. The number one album in America with, during these shows was Rumors, Fleetwood Mac, mm-hmm. you know, and. That was a obviously a huge selling record. I mean, really before like that record and Hotel California and Frantic Comes Alive, like if you sold two or three million records, that was like astronomical. And this was the beginning of selling ten million records, fifteen million records, you know. So as is often the case, you know, you want to reduce things down to like a movement or a band, but there were a lot of things happening at the same time. It was the rise right. of punk, but it was also like you know, kind of the peak of corporate rock at the same time. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the venue, Community War Memorial in Rochester. 
we probably don't need to get too deep into this because I, we talked about this venue in our Dick's Picks 21 episode. Um, the uh, like part, th- that was a that was a record where I think the filler tracks were taken from a show here at the War Memorial. Uh, the, the gig that they played on September second, nineteen eighty, right, was used for Dick's Picks Twenty One. Yeah, that was a weird one where it was an eighty five show for the bulk of it, but then they jumped back to nineteen eighty. Oh man, film. I miss yeah. Dick's Picks Twenty One. Use a <laughs> Dick's Picks Twenty One right now. Um, the Dead played at this venue. Uh, 10 times between 73 and 85. Uh, it's now known as Blue Cross Arena. And it is, of course, host to uh, semi-pro hockey teams. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You have the Rochester Nighthawks. Uh, well, actually, I'm sorry. Rochester Americans of the American Hockey League. And then there's also a lacrosse team, Rochester Nighthawks. Um, right. And I think we talked about this in a previous episode. Isn't it um, a fish concert? from this venue featured in a bittersweet hotel. Yeah. What is that? Is 12, 11, 97, I believe I yeah. will be get, getting to it soon in my essays, but uh, yeah, uh, exactly. Yep. Rochester War Memorial, 12, 11, 97. Great show. If you uh, want to check out an, a, a, a good fish show coming up on its 25th anniversary, you could, and, you could do a lot worse. And fact check on me. I said bittersweet hotel. It's bittersweet motel. Right. Excuse me. Course. The Bittersweet Hotel is nicer, yeah. <laughs> so, so, like, what's the difference between a hotel and a motel? Is it just, like, motels are, like, uh, vertical and uh, or horizontal and hotels are Like vertical? the one story. Yeah, I think the motels are the ones that you, like, park your car right outside the room and uh, okay. and walk in, whereas a hotel is, like, a more, uh, in you know, taller structure. Yeah. So there's a Heartbreak Hotel to call back to Elvis, <laughs> and there's a Bittersweet Motel. Right. Both bummers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we have the Seneca College Fieldhouse. That's the Toronto venue. Mm-hmm. And um, I could not find much information about this venue online. If you Google it, it just gives you Grateful Dead Dick's Picks 34 <laughs> links, essentially. <laughs> like, That's all it's known for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were some other you know notable concerts there, like uh, Bruce Springsteen played there on the Darkness Tour in 78, Patti Smith, mm-hmm. David Bowie, Thin Lizzy. I, I think they did like a lot of shows in the late 70s, but I think that this show is like the most famous show uh, mm-hmm. that was performed there. Yeah, and it's only filler tracks. It's only filler tracks. Yeah, that, that that's where the Seneca College Fieldhouse they they aspire to the to the filler. That's it. Yeah, I think probably the most notable thing about the location is that they actually crossed the border to play a show in Toronto, which I guess for any band in the '70s is a particularly risky thing to do uh, for the Grateful Dead, uh, especially risky. And there is a story about crossing the border to get to this show. Uh, that's in David Gann's book, Playing in the Band, uh, where, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, the dead were pulled over and searched uh, by Canadian Customs on their way into Toronto. Uh, they found bee pollen in Bobby's luggage. Now, it's in quotes, so I don't know if it actually was bee pollen or if bee pollen is a euphemism. I looked it up, bee pollen. So Bobby said he used bee pollen as like a nutritional supplement. And I was like, that sounds suspicious. But I, I searched it, and apparently this is a big thing, that all health food stores will sell you bottles of bee pollen. And it has all sorts of uh, 
unscientifically supported uh, benefits, supposedly. Um, so they thought it was drugs. They strip searched the band. They searched their all their equipment and everything. Let them in to play the show. Uh, they come. They have to drive back from Toronto to get to the Rochester show next. Uh, and of course, they get stopped and. Uh, searched again so uh, Phil if you listen makes a little uh, side comment in trucking uh, when they say busted down on Bourbon Street Phil chimes in with and elsewhere which I ah, assume yeah. is a reference to this uh, this incident on the way over so it really just does not seem worth it to me to play a Canadian show <laughs> if you were a rock band in the 70s or even today if you're a certain type of rock band because I mean you got to get across the border and it's just really seems like playing with fire well, I just like the knowledge that we're getting of Bobby's, you know, on tour uh, accoutrement that he has a bee <laughs> pollen, and we also learn that he, that he travels with an almanac, or at least yeah, he the did. farmer's almanac or whatever. Yeah, yeah so so you could you know drop some uh, Ho Chi Minh knowledge in the between song patter. set the scene here a little bit about what was else was going on in pop culture at the time of these shows in early November 77. Number one song in America, Debbie Boone, You Light Up My Life. Wow. Soft rock. Yeah. At its finest. Soft a de- pop. A defining schlock, right, uh, like a <laughs> schlocky hit really of the, of the 70s. Like when people would yeah. talk about songs that they hated, I feel like this was <laughs> like, like the Imagine Dragons of, of its time. Um, other big songs in America, Carly Simon, Nobody Does It Better. Yeah, from a James Bond movie, right? Is so it? From Spy Who Loved Me, I think. It's oh. like the theme song. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Heat Wave, Boogie Nights, Heat Wave, great funk band of the late 70s featuring Rod Temperton, who mm, yeah. uh, went on to write uh, Thriller. Uh, rock with you, many Michael Jackson songs. He also wrote the song "Sweet Freedom" for Michael McDonald, which oh. is a total banger. Um, <laughs> Sean Cassidy, that's rock and roll, and that is not a rock and roll song. He is like a teeny bopper, another kind of schlockmeister from the late seventies. Right. And the Commodores' "Brick House," and uh, another funky song. My wife hates that song. <laughs> that's like a, a wedding staple, right? Oh yeah. Does she- does she just uh, give the DJ a thumbs down when you hear it at a wedding? I don't know if you've heard it at a wedding, just like if it comes out on the radio. If you listen to like a Jack radio station, yeah, you, like Brickhouse comes on inevitably. And uh, I mean, uh, I'm endlessly uh, mentally grappling whenever I hear that song with what it means for a woman to be a brick house. I'm, like, is that flattery? Is that like, oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> is that I, a good thing? A bad thing? I'm not sure. I think the idea is, and I'm saying this just to explain 
what the song is about. It means that she's, <laughs> right. that she's well built, I believe, okay. is the connotation. Right. Explanation is not endorsement. That's what you're saying. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I'm just speaking on the Commodore's behalf. Uh, <laughs> right. The number one album, as I mentioned, Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Uh, it was many, many weeks at number one, I think, at this point. I think it's been number one on every 77 Dick's Picks. Yep. Which it deserves to be. Right. Um. Also in the top five this week was Linda Ronstadt's Simple Dreams, Steely Dan's Asia, another yeah. one. Give, give Asia a week at number one. That, that album mm. deserved a week at number one. Um, Foreigners, self-titled, and uh, the Rolling Stones, Love You Live. Yeah, how's that one? It's a pretty good record. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a disc of them playing in a club. That's pretty awesome. And they're doing like a Is lot it of all covers. just blues? Uh, I think a lot of it's kind of bluesy, but like I don't know, it's it sounds good, it sounds really good. They do a, they do a cover of "Cracking Up" by Bo Diddley, okay, which is really cool. They kind of like reggae it up, and I don't know, it's a cool version. Uh, number one TV show. Let's skip this. We're not going to do that one. We all know that. Come on, we're we're thirty four yeah. eps in. We're in nineteen seventy seven. Right. We don't need to talk about it. Uh, one thing I did think was notable that we should mention: November eighth. Few days after these shows, Harvey Milk, an iconic politician who sadly was assassinated a few years after this, became the first openly gay elected official in history, American history, when he was elected to the San Francisco City Council. So, Harvey Milk, there's a great documentary about Harvey Milk called The Times of Harvey Milk. I know that was on Criterion Channel. It might still be, but if you have Criterion, look for The Times of Harvey Milk. Really good movie. Yeah. We're still gunning for that Criterion Channel endorsement, even here <laughs> in the last uh, so the sponsorship. Yeah, we're running um, out of time here. We did skip the movie, the number one movie at this time, which was "Looking for Mr. Goodbar," which is one I've never seen. I've only just heard of it oh. as like a joke. Um, Diane sounds Keaton like a, sounds like a weird movie. It's like Diane yeah. Keaton living like a sexy double life. Yeah, she's um, a school teacher by day, and then. She goes to bars and picks up men at night. It's like not really that different from anyone in their twenties, you know. Who, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure lots of teachers in their twenties. They you know, they they're, they're taking care of the kids during the day, and then they're going out at night. Being young, you yeah. meet somebody, you hook up. But yeah, the movie it's sort of like a cautionary tale of yeah going to singles she, bars. She gets murdered, I think. Right? Is that a spoiler? <laughs> it's like it's like a famous. Uh, I read it in the Wikipedia. It was about a famous murder case. So yeah, think, Richard, uh, Richard Gere is like a, a he's sexy one of the men, bad right? boy. Yeah, yeah he's, like, he's like sexy bad boy in that movie. I think that's his first movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, looking for Mister Goodbar. And then uh, Close Encounters came out a week after these shows. So uh, you know, in the in the in the tour break between this fall tour and the New Year's Eve run, and uh, as we know, Jerry was a, a Close Encounters fan because. Uh, on Dick's Picks 10, uh, the very next Grateful Dead shows we heard, uh, they do a little Close Encounters tease before one of the songs. So, Sci-Fi Jerry. Had a good year. Yeah, there's also, um, I think it's like Dave's Picks 23, hmm. which is a show in early 78, like January 78. There's like a Close Encounters tease that, there too. So, that's something I guess that Jerry was just dabbling in. In late 77, early 78, just dug yeah. the movie. He wanted to communicate with aliens. He was making mountains out of his mashed potatoes and uh, playing his big synthesizer to talk to the aliens. If anyone talked to the aliens, it was Jerry Garcia. You know, Richard Gere, I mean, Richard Dreyfus kind of looks like Jerry a little bit. 
in uh, that movie. You could yeah. do a Dreyfus as Jerry, as old Jerry. Richard Dreyfus, he's still alive, right? Oh, yeah. He can be the aged up uh, Jerry when Jonah Hill can't pull it off. Well, that would be, I mean, that would be like the uh, yesterday version of the Jerry Garcia story. Like, you know, oh, where he's movie? still alive. Yeah, yeah, where John Lennon is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> it's so dumb. Uh, anyway, let's get to the show. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe for Grind podcast. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Here we are, Dick's Picks 34, November 5th, 1977, Rochester, New York, with a little bit of Toronto, November 2nd, 1977. Um, I was whining about this at the top of the episode, but yeah, we begin the first three songs exactly like Dick's Picks 33. So we're back in the zone of New Minglewood Blues, the greatest Grateful Dead song of all time, Mississippi Half Step, and Looks Like Rain. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, I, mean, I guess they're not exactly in the same order in either of the 76 shows, but they're all there in the first set. It's just like, you know, the dead, they had their, their set list patterns that they stuck to in different eras. So we're kind of getting a rerun here. Um, you mentioned, I think, last time that you liked the 77 Minglewoods, and I wanted to dig into that a little more. Uh, what do you like about 77 when you go I might I might have to retract that just because we've been getting a lot of new Minglewood blues. 
I, I was just saying that that's a song I associate with 77, I think, because of Cornell. You mm, know, yeah. Cornell starts with New Minglewood Blues, and obviously I like it on Cornell. And it is a song that I just associate with this era as a, as a, as a set opener. So I appreciate it. I mean, I don't love it or anything. And getting a lot of it lately, um, it's wearing on me a little bit. So, you know... I don't know if you expect me to launch into an impassioned defense of New Minglewood Blues. <laughs> right. I'm not going to do that. But, you know, again, I think uh, as a 77 tour opener, I just associate it with, like, this era. Right. And it is a song that I, I'm pretty sure they played from, like, the very start to the very end. And it changed its arrangements throughout. And it always kind of reflected the era it was in, which is kind of an interesting aspect of it. So it sort of soaked up whatever the dead were into. So, I mean, I, I, I liked this Minglewood and I like that it sort of has that disco rock hybrid energy that they sometimes found themselves in, in 77. Um, it is of course the origin of the, the, the whiskey line. So yeah, you got to give it a shout out for that, right? Yeah. I love it for the shot of whiskey, you know, cause <laughs> I, I enjoy a shot of whiskey from time right. to time. So Bob and I were on the same page with that, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I, the disco slips into that song, I think, pretty subtly. You know, you know, "Dancing in the Street" is another song that, like you said, is a song that they perform throughout their career, and it always seems to reflect uh, where the dead are at at that moment in time. Which I think, especially with "Dancing in the Street," where like if I looked at that on paper, I would I would maybe roll my eyes at a cover of that. Right. But in practice, I always really like it. I I, I really love what the dead do with that. Um, I love the disco-y versions. I like the more, uh, you know, uh, kind of garage rock versions that you get in the 60s. Uh, I, I love, you know, hearing Brent ham it up on it <laughs> in the 80s. You know, it's always cool to hear. Um, one thing we should mention about Mississippi Half Step is that this is regarded as one of the best half steps yeah. of all time. If you go to Hetty version, you see that it's number four on that list. And I think I have to consult Hetty version right now. I mean, I think most of the top ones are from 77. And fall 77 even, I think. Like fall 77 seems to be like the sweet spot for Half Step. And in, in, in sort of a full circle moment, I guess. Like I, I still, I like Half Step a lot. I think it's a, a really great Dead song. Uh, you are still get, uh, you know, negative feedback for... Suggesting that it was anything uh, less really than anymore. A, I, the greatest. Not, yeah, I never, I never, I, I, I think that's been put to bed because every time right. we declare it the greatest Grateful Dead song of all time. Um, right. I was just looking at Hetty version, by the way. The number one uh, voted half step, and I think I knew this is the English Town version yeah. from Dick's Picks Fifteen, and that one is, is 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 phenomenal. I like this one a lot too. I think that the reason why it uh, does so well is because of the peaks in the song. I think especially mm-hmm. there's that moment midway through, about six-minute mark, where it really rises to like an exciting peak. And then after that, you have like a nice cool-down period that mm-hmm. lasts for the rest of the song. But it seems like the peak there is, is what I'm guessing, that's what really kind of draws the people in.
Yeah. As much as I like Half Step as a song, I really am bad at detecting differences between versions. <laughs> like, I was, when you said that this was the fourth highest rated version, I was like, okay. I mean, it's a good version. I, I, I can kind of see why English Town is number one, too, but I don't see a lot of oxygen between, uh, you know, English Town and this version. I mean, it's, there's there are dead songs that, you know, definitely change a lot from performance to performance, and there's dead songs that just kind of had like a prime, I guess, where they don't really, they're not really that different, but they just, it's like they just kind of like nailed the song in that era. And it seems like Half Step and Fall 77 is uh, a perfect example of that, where, you know, I think it's better. It's a song that's better with Donna. It's a song that's better at maybe a slightly slower pace in 77 and stretched out a little bit. Uh, so it, it works here, but I'm not like, you know, my, my jaw is not on the floor <laughs> with this one in the way that you would expect from the number four version of all time. Yeah, I mean, I think that the English Town version, I see why that's number one. I mean, that's like a pretty, uh, you know, the guitar solo I think is pretty electrifying in that version. By the way, the comment on Heady version over this Hep Staff was super flowing and awesome. <laughs> Technical terms. <laughs> people, the people out there, they enjoy the flow. Of this half right. step, and I get what they mean, but I, I kind of get what you mean too. I, I, I don't know. Like when I listened to this half step, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like I thought this is one of the best half steps I ever heard. I mean, right. I'm guessing too that the accessibility of this version, the fact that it's on a Dix Picks, also, you know, has helped its status. You know, because yeah. this is an album. You know, people heard this more than like a lot of other shows. I'm sure. And I'm sure that's also what helps the English Town version, along with it being great. Um, one thing we need to talk about on this disc is that we're seeing a return of the rowdy audience. And the, <laughs> yeah. And the dead responding to the rowdy audience. This is like a running theme throughout 77. And, you know, we joke about Take a Step Back. And Take a Step Back comes back in uh, on this record. But uh, what was up with the audiences in seventy? They're very unchill. Yeah, uh, in this era. So um, before Direwolf here, between looks like rain and Direwolf, Jerry even says something. You know, it's serious when Jerry says something, right? Instead <laughs> yeah, of Jerry, Phil. Jerry's not going to be a cop unless yeah. you know people are literally just, like strangling each other in the audience or something. Well, then, then Jerry's going to come out and be reluctantly copish. Right, and he says, it's hard for us to get off seeing smashed human bodies up here. So, uh, yeah, graphic. Not quite uh, people getting all bug-eyed. Maybe we, Do we get that later in this, take a step back? I forget if you drop, Bob uses the bug-eyed Yeah, Bob, Bob, um, yeah, Bob's big on the bug-eyed. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I looked into this because I also thought the same thing. Like, why are these audiences so misbehaved that they have to do take a step back like almost every show in 77 it feels like there's a take a step back and uh this show was apparently you know worse than most um the rochester war memorial is a big circle venue has had these glass doors all around and apparently due to some sort of fire code thing the doors had to open outward they didn't open inward uh so all the deadheads like before the doors opened were like 
gathered around these doors waiting for them. It was a GA general admission show. They were all like packed against the doors, ready to run up to the front of the stage. Uh, But they couldn't get the doors open because the doors open out and there was a big crush of people. Uh, So apparently the deadheads uh, eventually just smashed the glass in the doors and went running through, uh, causing security to... Uh, flee <laughs> essentially the scene uh, nobody had their tickets checked it sounds like uh, and so it sounds like you know the what did what'd you say the capacity was like 11,000 14,000 something like that yeah it depends on the configuration but it's like 11,000 to 14,000 somewhere yeah. in there it sounds like there might have been more than that in this show and that everybody ran down to the floor to try and get as close as possible. So uh, I, I was looking through the dead, you know, dead.net has uh, like a memory page sort of for every show. Uh, and there's a lot of like very graphic comments of people uh, talking about this door situation and seeing people that were like bleeding from getting cut by glass on their way Jesus. in, but still enjoying the show. And I mean, it reminded me again of that Dick's Picks 21, which um, you might remember there was a very bad, ugly scene outside the show and it kind of produced a a, a rowdy atmosphere inside the venue uh this one too it seems like uh things were a little tipping into chaos a little bit uh during the course of this show so um yeah doesn't sound like i I, you, you know i going to a concert these days especially a big concert can be pretty annoying like going through security and all that stuff but um I don't think the days of full general admission venues were a great idea either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I was going to say. It seems to lead to this a lot. From what you're describing, it reminds me of the Riverfront disaster. The Cincinnati yeah. since in 79, like where there was a rush on the doors and a bunch of people got trampled. I mean, it sounds like this could have actually been much worse. If, yeah, if, yeah. If things that, you know because it sounds like people got hurt maybe but no one died yeah a lot of people were kind of like swept up in this wave of people going in and you could easily see how you know if they fell down they were they would get crushed so uh really scary really um again context is everything with these shows like you you hear about that scene going in and it kind of changes a song like direwolf right like uh you know jerry's up there singing don't murder me uh, and you can kind of see why, like he's watching people getting squished in the fronts and people are bleeding from their jeans from crawling over broken glass to get into the show. And, uh, it's not all your, uh, you know, light hippie good times that you might think of from the dead in 77. I gotta say too, man, you East coast deadheads, you gotta chill out. You know, you're, <laughs> you're getting tons of dead shows right? already. I mean, they, the Dead probably played like four shows in New York State, like around this time, or, or yeah, least... I mean, right, right in a row. The last leg of this tour was all upstate New York shows, so you had a lot, plenty of opportunities, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, just chill out. It's not like you're in the middle of the country like us, and you're getting maybe like a dead show a year if you're lucky. You're getting tons of shows. Pace yourself, man. Don't trample. Right. Don't break glass. I'm scolding the Deadheads from like 45 years ago, right now. <laughs> Exactly. I'm, go- I'm going back in time, like Scott Bakula <laughs> in Quantum Leap, if you will. I'll, I'll wow. revive that reference. I'm going to go back in time with Dean Stockwell, and we're going to like, <laughs> I'll go back in the body of Jerry Garcia, and I'll scold these people for uh, being so violent at this show. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that just sounds like that was a common thing, though, in 77, for whatever reason. Right. People were just really rambunctious and not taking care of their fellow deadheads, kind of squeezing people and... The band had to step in a lot of the time. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but you know, uh, it adds a little extra 
energy to this set, which I actually, I got to say, I like this first set a lot. I like this first disc a lot. Um, you mentioned earlier judging shows by their set list. I think this is one that you could easily sort of, you know, glaze over looking at the set list and seeing a lot of very first setty songs and no real surprises. There's no, you know, what was what was it? The Dancing Rat <laughs> from last volume. There's no uh, Music Never Stopped into Sugary back into Music Never Stopped. It's like the stuff that you would expect the dead to play in the first set, but it's all pretty good. And exemplifying this, I think, is the Bobby country duo segment of this set, which is Mama Tried into Big River. Uh, we got a tweet from a listener, Joe Valentino, who said he couldn't wait to hear what we thought of this, which was helpful because, you know, maybe I would have sort of half listened to this part of the set. We know that Bobby's always going to do his country songs in a 77 set. Uh, but uh, you listen to this and not only are it, it's a good version of both songs, uh, it, it totally does the thing you talk about, Steve, where Jerry's just soloing his ass off for 10 minutes here over these two songs. Uh, but then um, the most disco dead segment of the entire volume happens in, of course, the Johnny Cash cover, Big River, where the drummers, <laughs> after playing the first part of the song, pretty straightforward, you know, country dead, right in the middle of Jerry's solo, spontaneously decide, now we're playing the disco version of Big River and change the drum beat uh, from country rock to disco. And I love it. It's so stupid <laughs> but it works i mean jerry is not thrown by it at all he like actually if anything is inspired by the fact that the band the drummers are, are playing their little prank in the background but uh yeah I, I i mean this is there's other disco big rivers but i've never heard one that just like decides to switch genres in the middle of the song in the middle of the solo I appreciated it because other than that, you don't get a whole lot of disco dead on no. Dick's Picks 34, which is a surprise because, uh, I mean, even in, this, in Dick's Picks 33, I thought that was a little more disco-y than what we get uh, in, in 34. And, you know, we were talking about the other 1977 Dick's Picks. I mean, you know, Dick's Picks 3 is the, you know, the, one of the great examples of, of disco dead. The, in, in the disco sleaze being brought in and uh it's not here and you know and i think it suffers for it because it just again it feels a little more straightforward i think uh which isn't always a compliment uh for the grateful dead but yeah i i dug that a lot one thing i really liked from this disc i didn't like it as much as you did i i would actually say that the second disc is my favorite of on, on this record but i did appreciate the appearance of Candyman. Yeah, because 
this is really like a dark horse ballad, I feel like, for the dead in terms of playing it live. You know, we don't hear it as much as as like a Tennessee Jed or like a Ramble on Rose, like songs that are kind of around the same tempo and have a similar vibe. Give me Candyman over those songs any day of the week. I, I This is like such a cool tune, and I think they play it really well here. Uh, and yeah, I just wish we heard this song more. I feel like it it's one of those songs uh that yeah they just don't bring into the fold for whatever reason as as often as others it made me look it up because yeah this is only the third candy man we've heard um and one of those is the dick Spicks eight um version from harper college that is actually only i think the first verse and one chorus and then they pull the plug and jump into something else uh uh, the Dead played Candyman 273 times, so it's uh, it's almost uh, improbable that we got it so few times in Dick's Picks. But it's a great song. I love that. I love Candyman, and I, I really like it in this era of the Dead. Um, I think it was a little bit of a slog later in the 80s and 90s because it got maybe a little too slow, um, and it's a little bit faster in the early 70s. But this ver- this era of the song has a sort of good middle ground tempo that I really like. And I really like Jerry's tone on this Candyman. He's using sort of a watery effect that I think adds a lot to the song. Uh, and Donna sings really well. Candyman is a song that has, you know, great harmonies. And so having Donna there to kind of hold down the harmony end of it makes it a lot better. Um, so yeah, uh, really happy to hear Candyman here. And, um, yeah, part of why I like this first set so much. You feel like the first set's better than the second one. I would ab- absolutely say that the first set of the show, I prefer it to the second set. My favorite parts of this volume, oddly, I would say, are the first set and the filler. <laughs> Whereas the second set doesn't really move me very much to spoil what we're going to say for the rest of the episode. Um but I wonder if that's a little bit on my end, because I wonder if you go through this too, where I think I sometimes get into a mood where I prefer first set Grateful Dead to second set Grateful Dead. And maybe it's like, depending on the era that we're listening to, I guess. But lately, and I feel like this has been true for a couple volumes now, I've been more drawn to the songier first sets uh, than sort of the improv heavy second sets. And, you know, Maybe something to do with the weather, like the sort of uh, material the dead play, lighter material they play in the first set kind of goes well with sitting on my porch, whereas the really heavy stuff is more of like a uh, like a fall winter vibe for me. Um, but yeah, do you ever go back and forth or is it just well, contingent I mean, on the show? I think what's true of this record and, and probably like the last one is that the second sets actually aren't that jammy, you know, and there's not a big set piece that would draw you in and, and really, I mean, I guess, I mean, Dick's picks three 33 actually had some set pieces there that I thought were pretty good, but this one really doesn't. I think one reason I like the second disc so much is that, well, first of all, let's talk about the eyes of the world here because, um, I've said many times that I'm not crazy about eyes of the world, when you get out of that magical 73, 74 zone where I think they just played it with the jazzy feel and it just had the perfect tempo. And then after that, I become uh, the dude from Whiplash 
admonishing the dead, saying, not my tempo. It often feels too fast for me. I mean, that's especially true once you get into the 1980s. They play eyes just stupidly fast. They become, you know, like Metallica in 1981 with Eyes of the World, (laughs) just like speed metal almost. I actually really like this Eyes, though. I thought that they nailed the tempo. I thought it had a great feel. And it just had all of the qualities that I really like of Eyes of the World. It's, it's not the 73, 74 jazziness exactly, but I think it has enough of that for me to get into it. And then you add the sort of muscularity of 77 Dead. It was a really good balance. I really like this Eyes quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I liked it too. I really like it as a set opener, though. There are two tracks of goofing around before they get around to actually playing Eyes of the World. We'll circle back to that in a minute. But um, yeah, it's really good. Like the Jerry solos are excellent, I think, in the between the sort of sections of Eyes of the World. I did kind of miss that like um, coda that comes at the end of the Eyes of the World jam, the like slipknotty part. Uh, it just, after we've heard so many great 73, 74 eyes, you get the sort of fill bass solo, which is at the end of Eyes, which is felt a little off to me, like something was up with his gear and he wasn't quite, uh, you know, selling it the way he normally does. Uh, and then it just kind of like winds down into Samson rather than getting this like sort of second push of jammy energy at the end. But uh, great opener. I was really happy it didn't go into Estimated Profit because we're now into the era where Eyes and Estimated are almost always paired together. Uh but we eventually got not one, but two estimated profits. Yeah, we got a double shot of estimated <laughs> coming up here. Um, before we get into the filler, because I agree yeah. with you, I, I I actually really like the filler, and I I kind of feel like the, the filler on this disc is probably my favorite part of this record. Yeah, I could see um, that. I, I, I like it quite a bit. But um, we need to talk about the Take a Step Back. Yeah, I mean, it's a good one. It's a really uh, good one. It's like one of the best yeah. ones. They, they do like a really kind of cool jam in the background. And it becomes right. like, like, it turns into like a post-punk song at some point. It's like, a, you know, <laughs> it sounds like The Fall or something. Right. Uh, I really dug it. And it segues right into Eyes of the World pretty smoothly, too. So it's uh, almost as though they had planned this little pre-jam. Yeah, it starts with a Phil solo, which I guess is another sign of how far we've come since Dick's Picks 1. That, you know, in Dick's Picks 1, they cut out a Phil solo from the middle of a song. And here, for whatever reason, they include the Phil solo, which is not very good. (laughs) That leads into the second set. Uh, And then you get your Take a Step Back. Uh, It this take a step back like the half step is number four on heady version uh yes there is a heady version page for take a step back because of course there is um i was just gonna say number one has to be cornell right it is it is cornell, okay number that's one, the, that's the most iconic all right yeah but i listened to probably the top 10 take a step backs <laughs> uh dedicated as i am to this podcast and doing the research um pretty interesting thing to do actually like i would recommend it if you ever uh want to get into some real Grateful Dead oddities is jump around that list. Uh, because they did take a step back from like the early 70s all the way into the 90s. Like it's This is like a gag that they never got sick of doing. Um, there's, of course, these like classic May 77 ones. Uh, I think the number two take a step back is actually from the show after this one, um, which I didn't really understand why that one was so highly ranked i think this one is probably better than that one uh but number three is from a dylan in the dead show in 87 and it has it is a take a step back mixed with references to walk like an egyptian 
Oh, so that's man. Definitely of its era. <laughs> uh, but the best ones I found were some early 90s ones when uh, Dan Healy, the dead sound guy, had all sorts of like weird effects he could put on people's vocals. Uh, and so once Bob starts doing the take a step back, he starts looping Bob doing uh, Bob's like lines or sometimes Phil's lines or Jerry's lines and creating this like crazy sound collage, take a step back. Uh, and there's a few that are really awesome with like some cool music going on behind it. It sounds like, like space. It's like a space, take a step back. Uh, so I would highly, uh, recommend people dig into those. I found one recently just kind of accidentally in 1984, which is the first one I found where Bob actually sounds pissed off at the audience <laughs> while he's doing it. Cause he's always kind of jovial about it. And they do the like, let's count to four and take a step back. Uh, the 10, 20, 84 one I found, which is also on the list. He is like yelling at the crowd basically <laughs> to get, to, to get their shit together. So, wow. uh, yeah, take a step back is a, it's a great way to experience grateful dead history. If you ever are inclined. Solid, take a step back, deep dive there, man. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm excited. Well, that's going to be our next season. 36. <laughs> take a step back from the vault. Uh, it'll be great. Now it's time to play America's favorite fun game. Take a step back. Now when our friends, our friends, Yeah, let's get to the filler here. You know, to call back to a theme of this episode in terms of judging a show by the set list, this is, I think, another reason why you don't necessarily want to do that because um, I got to say, Around and Around, this is probably my favorite Around and Around that I've ever heard. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear you say that because I was going to tell you to sit down when I said that too. (laughs) I dug it. I dug it. And I think the thing I, I respond to uh with you know with this part of the disc is i i feel like there's a real uh energy to jerry's playing there's like an extra uh a little more piss and vinegar to his yeah there's an edge to it it sounds really aggressive yeah and i really responded to that uh because i feel like there's an energy there that isn't there for the rochester show Mm -hmm. yeah um i mean i was looking at the set list there uh because I, I didn't listen to the entire Toronto show, I dabbled in it a little bit. But because when I was looking at it, I was like, "Oh, why didn't they include?" Because there's a Scarlet Fire from that show, right? I'm like, "Did we really need to double up on estimated profit here?" Because we get two <laughs> estimateds here, and I was like, "Well, maybe we right. could have got Scarlet Fire in." Although the thing is, is that I prefer the estimated profit from Toronto to the one on right. Rochester. So it's almost like, well, maybe they should just included more of toronto on this record <laughs> uh, i don't know because because i don't like the double estimated but i like the filler estimated more than the rochester one right and and the the toronto estimated i mean i guess they both are but they're it's part of like a block of songs right where if you cut one of them you would only get part of this like song suite well it's like it might as well cases you might as well and then 
they cut the songs between Might as Well and Estimated Profit. So right. it, Might as it, Well was the end of set one, I believe, right. uh, at that show. And then they cut to like the second half of the second set. Yeah, you, yeah, you get like, uh, there's a Scarlet Fire, there's, uh, well, it's Good Lovin', Sunrise, and then Scarlet Fire. Right. So we could have gotten Sunrise again, you know, <laughs> call back to Dick's Picks 3, and, uh, you know, in the Good Lovin'. I don't know. I I guess, you know, at first I was like, well, maybe they should have included that block instead of the block that they did here, but right. I think I'm going to go against that. I think they made the right call. It's just that... <laughs> They should have cut the Rochester estimated then. You know, mm-hmm. something should have been cut here, I think. <laughs> I mean, I agree. I think the I like the Toronto stuff here better than anything from the Rochester show. Um, the might as well is awesome. You, you mentioned that it, you know, we've heard two in a row. Uh, in this case, I didn't mind because it is like such a high energy might as well. And like, we didn't talk about it, but like the... The first part of this disc from the Rochester show, you have this great eyes. You go into Samson and Delilah, which I really didn't need to hear again after Dick's Picks 33, where we got two of them. And then it goes into It Must Have Been the Roses. So you're just like downshifting energy from song to song <laughs> at the start of this Rochester second set. And then all of a sudden, Might as Well comes in and like you know that you're in a different show. Like the energy level just is totally different between it must have been the roses and might as well and it's got that great jerry tone i guess he started using wolf again in fall i won't pretend to be a jerry guitar expert but i looked at one of those pages of jerry jerry's guitar history and he got the wolf guitar back for fall 77 and i think that probably is a big difference between the may 77 sound and the fall 77 sound is that jerry was using a, a sort of more aggressive guitar tone um but yeah, so you get estimated, you get into the slow St. Stephen, which we have ragged on a lot in this show. I'm surprised yeah. people don't give us more like shit for that. Well, but this one has more of like the 60s vibe to it, I feel like. It is a, yeah. it, it's still slower, but because Jerry is playing like a harsher tone, it just right. hits harder and it feels more energetic. Like yeah, I I don't really like St. Stephen in this era, but I like this version of it. I th- I thought yeah. that, like they really it brought a little bit more of that that, that 60s energy you know, into the 77 St. Stephen.
Now I like that it doesn't have the not fade away bit in the middle, that it's just straight St. Stephen all the way through. I think that helps the, the intensity of the song, like go from go from start to finish. Um, some really cool Keith electric piano in this part of the set too that you don't hear as much in the Rochester show, I feel like. He's got this really dirty sounding electric piano that he uses for uh, Estimated. Uh, he even uses it for a little bit of the start of St. Stephen. Uh, but I liked hearing that, you know, a different sort of Keith sound. I know he hated playing anything but piano, but it's nice to hear him with a yeah. different tone than we're used to. It really is like an interesting contrast because, again, I feel like, like you said, disc two, I think it starts well. Samson, Delilah, I liked that more than you did. I, I, I tend to, I don't love that song, but I, I can appreciate it as like a big upbeat I think of it as a I think of it as a showcase for the r- rhythm section really. Like the drums really sound good on Samson and Delilah, especially in this era. Must have been the roses I can kind of take or leave, but yeah, then you get this shot of energy at the end of the disc, which I think is really strong and again, the around and around. I you know, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but I really enjoyed this version of it. Um so yeah, so for me the 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 second disc is is the the best disc. It's the one I I liked playing the most. You get into uh, to disc three, and I feel like again the energy just drops after the high point. I, I I gave one time when I listened through this volume, I skipped past the Toronto material just to get the second set sort of as it as it played, uh, and it just feels like the energy is being cranked down this whole entire set, like pretty much all the way through, uh, like Sugar Magnolia at the end of the set. It's just like a from the eyes, it's just a big downhill energy. Because this estimated, you know, the two estimateds are not that different, um, but it's definitely a more chill estimated than the Toronto one. One thing that I thought was interesting about it, so Keith uses this cool electric piano effect through the Toronto one. I don't know if Keith just, like, left the stage, but he, like, completely disappears in the jam of this estimated profit, which contributes to it being, I think, a little more down tempo and a little more relaxed uh i kind of like it in a way too i mean i like that they're different um but yeah i just thought it was funny that i mean maybe this is keith getting into his his difficulties a little bit uh but he pretty much just sits out <laughs> this entire jam uh, but yeah it's just like from there it's like he's gone the segue into he's gone is just a total like train wreck <laughs> yeah it's and it sounds weird for a while yeah. It, just, it just sounds like they're off, and you, it just felt like, oh, just start over. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you got off on, like, on the wrong foot here. And, you know, I was saying before, oh, they should have cut the estimated from this disc. And I understand this is like a block of music, so it would have been hard to take anything out. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like um, this disc, like the, the Rochester stuff, I just don't feel like this is a strong set. Like the other one, too. I've been yeah, really very enjoying mellow other one. Yeah, yeah I've, I've been really enjoying the other one this season. Some of the ones that we've heard, I think, have been great. And usually, that is a chance for the dead to really kind of cut loose. And it's almost like the opposite of Dark Star. It's like we're gonna not be spacey. We're gonna like just kick ass and lock into a killer groove. And they don't do that here. Um, this other one, it just feels yeah, like you were saying, a little laggy, a little sleepy. Um, I gotta say too, man. I was gonna say it tries to ignite a couple times, but it never, and it doesn't seem to work. It just keeps sliding back into this like mellow other one, 
which sometimes can be nice, but there, it just, this time it just feels like a lack of inspiration. Yeah, I, and I feel like they really needed the other one to come through here. They yeah. needed the jolt of energy here to bring people back so that the quiet parts would also have a power. I think that because this other one isn't as energetic as it needs to be, it makes everything else sound sleepier. You know, like, so instead of just being like, well, these are like mellow versions and they're kind of chill and nice because you don't have that contrast. It just all feels sluggish. say too i'm not a huge fan of black peter that's not a song that like i've really ever responded to that's that, mm-hmm. that much um to me it just feels pretty draggy like i've never heard a version that like really connected with me at least like not a band version i feel like this song works uh maybe acoustically better yeah. than it does as a band that's what i, I was know. gonna say i really like the bear's choice black peter because uh, it just it's kind of like slow and like oozy and really really sparse, but I think it's just Jerry and Bob playing on that version. Um, we also there's a version on the Dix Pix Eight again, the Harper College one, which I like. That was yeah, cool, I'm, yeah, yeah. And so I'm with you on that. It's like I, acoustic. It was it's a cool song electrically, and they played it a lot. I always think of Black Peter as being a rarity, but they played it even more than Candyman. They played it 343 times. So. Not a rarity at all, but it does feel like the Jerry Ballad, because it's sitting here in the Jerry Ballad slot, right? It's exactly where you would play Stella Blue or Warfrat or maybe a Morning Dew. Instead, you get Black Peter, and there, it just Black Peter is a very, I guess, vibey song that doesn't really build to a big catharsis. It just kind of rolls along. And like I, I, I enjoy Jerry's vocal performance, I think, more than anything else in this version. Uh, but they try and do like a big ending with the run and see thing at the end, and it just like it it doesn't work for me. So, yeah, another th- another strike against this set, I guess, is that while I enjoy hearing something different, it's like it didn't help this set's problems. Yeah, it, it's not a good spot for it. I feel like Black Peter should be like a first set song, or maybe like mm-hmm. early in the second set. But like you said, this is like the Jerry Ballad showstopper slot where right. 
you he plays one of the ballads that has a really dramatic ending where you're going to start quiet and then it's going to be Jerry on a mountaintop playing an epic guitar solo. And you don't really get that opportunity here. And again, it just adds to the sleepiness of the set. And again, I'm going to blame the other one. I think the other one, that should have been the set piece. Yeah. And it, and it's not. And it so, let us all down. Yeah, there's just not, and, it, and it just makes everything else sound flatter, I think, mm-hmm. on this yeah. disc. Uh, another thing that makes it sound flatter is that apparently they didn't have a full bitty board of this show. Uh, so halfway through Black Peter, they had to shift sources to, I think it says it's like the PA mix. I'm trying to remember from the, the, the caveat emptor says that they had to switch to the PA cassette master tapes uh, to fill out the rest of this show. Um, it sounds like an odd. And I part of me is like, this is, it, it's kind of cool that, um, you 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 change it changes the whole tone of the show in a lot of ways. We we've talked a lot about the different experience of listening to a show in soundboard versus listening to an audience tape, where you get more of the room sound, you get more of the sort of atmosphere of the crowd at that show. And this one, obviously, we had we talked about it has a very chaotic crowd. So in some ways, maybe the odd was a more authentic representation of the music on this night. Uh, but on the other hand, it just kind of it sounds kind of flat, especially coming off a of Betty board and the songs it, 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 it con- continues with that, you know, subpar source for sugar Magnolia on one more Saturday night, two songs that, you know, they're fine. Do we need to have them on this? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> you uh, end the Rochester show a little early and put the Scarlet fire from Toronto on there instead. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're playing backseat driver here, I guess. Well, I but that's a good point. I think that they could have cut that and they could have put on some more of Toronto mm-hmm. and it would have been better. I mean, you already have, you know, seven songs of filler out of like how many songs total? Uh, uh, 28. So, you know, like a quarter of the record is already from Toronto. Why not just put on two other songs that yeah. are better than what we're getting here? You know, I, I think that would have been a good choice. I think there's just this like fetishiz ah, can't say the word, fetishization of releasing full shows. Right. And and I just imagine Dave got an earful from a certain kind of dead fan every time he put out a Dick's Picks that wasn't the entire show. Like, no matter what flaws uh were in the source tapes. Uh, if they didn't do a full show, it wasn't uh, true to you know these people's standards. So well, and I uh, I, I understand that because it's a different era, and this uh, unless you were you know you had an odd or something an odd tape of this show, this would maybe be the only representation that most people would hear. So you want mm-hmm. the whole show? I, I guess I'm coming at it from a perspective of you know we all have access to re-listen and live archive so if we want to hear a whole show we can so i have more of the perspective of looking at it as an album and just putting the best music on the album versus more of a completist type thing but yeah that's like a retroactive thing that wouldn't have applied to when this record came out in 2005 so i get why they did what they did but i'm still gonna be the monday morning quarterback here (laughs) and complain about it because that's what we do on the show we complain yeah it did make me wonder, and I, I want to look this up for our next, next episode. Maybe even I'll write to Dave and see if he, can, he writes back to us. But um, when did they know that the Dick's Pick series was ending? 
right? Oh, you, th- yeah. you would think around this time, with only it seems like he, he, certainly today in the Dave Spicks era, he seems to be working like three or four volumes ahead, right? Uh, so at this point that they know that Dick's Picks was going to end with 36 and they were going to move on to, I think, Road Trips is next. Because Road Trips is, um, you know, somewhat controversially not complete shows. There's a lot of Road Trips that are like highlights from a run rather than here's a complete show with some filler. Uh, and feels in a lot of ways like a response to, you know, here's what wasn't working at the end of Dick's Picks. So um, I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll reach out to our buddy Dave and see if he could talk a little bit about, you know, what they were thinking as they decided to to wrap up this series and move on to some other ways of putting out dead music. That would be cool. I'd love to hear him explain himself to us because <laughs> he owes us an explanation here. Yeah. At 36 from the vault. Um, well, I think, I mean, do we have anything else to say about Dick's Picks 34? I think that I think about we did does it. it. I yeah. think we nailed it. And again, I'm just going to say, pretty good album, the least essential Dick's Picks of 1977. I think that's, I think that's safe to say. You know, I to would, me, yeah. I mean, I know Dick's Picks 10, I remember having some issues with that. That's like also, that's the December uh, 28, 29 of uh, 77. I mean, I think that the shows later in the year are not as good as the shows certainly in may of 77 but you know i would still put dick's picks 10 over this one dick's picks 3 obviously is the jewel of 77 dick's picks um i you know i'm glad it's there but you know this is the last one i'm gonna reach for if i want a 77 dick's picks yeah the only one that i think is sort of in the same ballpark here is dick's picks 29 is just so long i've already forgotten (laughs) like what i uh what I liked from that, <laughs> even though it was just a few weeks ago. Um, so this one at least has sort of a uh, conciseness uh, that makes me think, like, I know what I'm getting when I go to this one. But, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it is, we're, we're to the point of Dick's Picks where we're not telling the... We're, 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 we're past the big landmarks as we fill in the Grateful Dead story. Uh, and now we're kind of to advanced level Grateful Dead history for the people that really want to dig into like what sounded different between September, November, and December of 1977. Mm. And that's fine. I mean, there's, I'm one of those people. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's worth having this out there, but you know, maybe not the one you, you pull off the shelf all the time. So our next step is on Dick's Picks 35 penultimate. Mm. edition we're, we're we're this is kind of what we're talking about this is like more of a survey yeah. type edition although it is a four banger lots of meals big meals here you, no snacking allowed in our <laughs> final season you got to save up for the meals because you're getting a lot of food uh but yeah we're covering um i guess like three shows basically in august of 1971 uh and i think they're all in california you have a show in uh, san diego from august 7th a show at the Hollywood Palladium on August 6th and uh one in Chicago. What, okay, so that's that's not in California. August right, 24th, Chicago, California. Yeah. 1971. <laughs> so, yeah, we're we're getting out of the mid 70s. We're going to the early 70s now. And we're going to stay in the early 70s for the remainder of our season cuz Dick's Picks 32 is September 72. Mm-hmm. So, uh yeah, Pigpen is resurrected. We're going to be back with them. <laughs> Back with the pig. Yep. So uh, tune in. There's not too much, not too much. Thirty six from the vault left. So 
yep. stay tuned for the the final run. Yep. We're, we're, we're in our fat Elvis years right now. Don't miss it. <laughs> 36 from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.